Uh, last week, I was not here. Uh, I got to go to Lapine for the first time and see what was going on down there, and it was great. Uh, we, I sent your greetings, and, and uh, it's cool to see what's going on. Continue to pray for that. Uh, there was still, it was a, a light day, um, but there was a bunch of people missing, so it was still about 60 people, which is really cool, and a um, lot, lot of cool things happening there. So keep praying for that uh, new work. So Acts 17 is where we uh, pick up this morning. Uh, the church is continuing to grow as a result of the second missionary journey that's, that's forging through the, uh, the world right now. Paul and Silas are fresh off of a public beating and an arrest in Macedonia. Uh, when the public officials realized that both of those guys were Roman citizens, uh, they realized they kind of you know, made a big mistake there, and so they politely apologized and asked them to leave the city, uh, which they did after saying goodbye to Lydia and, and the other new Christians um, from that, that city. So that's kind of where we pick it up in, in verse 1 of chapter 17, which says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So once again, we see Luke emphasizing uh, that, that Paul would go to the synagogue first to try to win his brothers before he would go out to try to win others. Uh, God has never forgotten about his national people. He remains faithful to them. His promises remain good to them. But in his grace, he has grafted us into this, this plant that he's been cultivating, this plan of redemption that goes on. And so we get to be a part of that, which that's good news if you're a Gentile. Uh, we see that Paul's method that he was using uh, to try to reach these guys was he was using the scriptures to convince them. Um, he wanted to, to show that the, the Jewish brothers that the Christ had to suffer and to rise from the dead. And this would have been a foreign thing to them. They didn't see that coming. They didn't understand that. And that's something they would have had a hard time accepting. But the Old Testament is filled with references to this, this very thing. Isaiah 53 is a great example, or Psalm 22. You can go there and read these things, and you can see what Paul is telling them. I think in general, the Jewish people had no problem with an idea of Messiah, a Messiah that would save them from their captivity, but, but they didn't understand a concept of a Messiah that would save them from their sin. And, and I think that that's still alive and well today. People like the idea uh, of a Jesus who will solve all their problems, right? come into their life and make everything good, but, but they're not necessarily looking for a remedy for their sin, and there's a big difference in, in those things. It mentions that Paul went to the synagogue on three different occasions. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were consecutive weeks. Um, they were in Thessalonica, Thessalonica for quite a while. Uh, so it's clear, though, that he had ample time to tell others about Jesus. And it sounds like it was pretty effective because uh, it says that some Jews, some devout Greeks, and many of the leading women in the town believed. So things are going well, but not with the believing Jews as usual. They didn't like what was going on. They were seeing people come to Christ, and um, it says that they got jealous now, we're not told exactly why they became jealous, but you can imagine if you start to see your base kind of erode, uh, more people start going to their church service than to your church service, uh, the finances start to drop, you know, those kinds of things start to happen. All of a sudden, you've got a problem on your hands. You feel threatened by it. 
And jealousy and envy are very powerful emotions that can cause us to behave badly. If you're, if you're like me, uh, it doesn't bring out the best in me when I get jealous or envious, and it didn't bring out the best in them. Verse 5 tells us, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble... I love that. <laughs> the rabble. You know who you are, right? <laughs> they, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, and now they've come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of, Ce- decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So in their jealous frenzy, the Jews form a plan to accuse the Christians of stirring up trouble. And ironically, step one of their plan was to stir up trouble. <laughs> it's kind of funny, you know. Ah, these guys are just stirring up all kinds of trouble. What can we do? I've got an idea. Let's stir up some trouble, right? Great. Uh, they obviously weren't worried, they, you know, really actually worried about trouble being stirred up in their town because they have no problem doing it themselves. They use deception and violence, false accusations and extortion to try to stop the other side from being successful. And then they somehow justified as being on the moral high ground. We're good at those kinds of things. They round up the rabble, right, the derelicts in town. They, they hire this, this mob to go and, and tear the place up so that they can then point to Paul and Silas and be like, check out what these guys just did. That's, that's the plan. Manufacturing fear and hysteria is still the way leaders manipulate people like pawns on a chessboard today. It's very effective. If, if somebody can convince you that everything is like, you know, the sky is falling and you should be afraid and you'll start to spin out of control in a hurry and they'll get you to do what they want. We need to be careful not to fall into the trap of that. And also, just like today, they spin the information in a way that advances their own agenda, right? It, you can almost picture the news report. You know, I'm standing outside the home of Jason, uh, you know, a local man who was arrested today for aiding and abetting a radical group of religious, you know, Christians, they call themselves, who have been tearing up all kinds of towns, you know, not only in this region, but they've all through the land. You know, one witness is quoted as saying, you know, these men are turning the whole world upside down. You know, it's like... This is the kind of thing that they're telling everybody. And they want to, not only are they, are they you know, tearing up places, but they're also trying to like get Caesar ousted from his throne and put their own king, some guy named Jesus, in there. And so this is serious. You know, we need to do something about it now. And that's why it says in verse 8 that the townspeople and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Of course they were disturbed. That's pretty disturbing stuff, right? Of course, it's fake news. It existed back then, too. It exists today, you know, and I'm not trying to go, you know, to one side or the other. There's just fake news out there in general, but, but it sounds bad. The truth is Paul and Silas were not trying to overthrow the government, not even a little. In fact, Christians are called to submit to the governing authorities. We're called to live peaceful lives when possible and to be good citizens. We should be the best citizens in the world. They were making sure that people were prepared for the coming kingdom and for the coming king. That's what they were doing. And there was nothing wrong with that. There was no, no crime committed. So Jason apparently had to post some kind of bail to be released, a security bond of some kind, um, and, and then probably also had to give them assurance that his friends would leave town because verse 10 says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived... 
they went to the Jewish synagogue, which is funny to me because it's like, really? You know, that's, it's like these guys aren't, they're not learning their lesson. They get there and they think, you know where we should go first? Because we've been, it's gone so well all the other times. Let's go to the Jewish synagogue. And that's what they do. Getting run out of town can seem like the enemy won. But that's really not the case at all. Many people were converted in Thessalonica. A church was formed there. Paul would later write two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, in case you weren't tracking, but I figured you knew that, uh, where he encouraged the new church, um, taught them, corrected the believers who lived there, those kinds of things, instructed them. This was a big win. Anytime we get the chance to either plant a seed or water a seed or harvest a seed, it's a win. And this is cool. And I think... What Paul writes later about the church in Thessalonica is pretty cool. In First Thess 1.8, he says this, And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it. For they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you were looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, from, God, from uh, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. So, you know, these guys are well known now. They're, they're making an impact. That's quite an endorsement for a town that you had to flee from in the middle of the night, really. So Paul and Silas arrive safely in Berea, and once again they head straight to the synagogue. But, but the reception that they get this time is a little bit different than the ones that they've received in the past. Verse 11 says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now the word noble there doesn't mean that they were more worthy than the people in in Thessalonica. It indicates that they were more open. Um, They weren't threatened by new information because they knew they had God's word to test it by. So they willingly received what Paul taught about Jesus being the Messiah, and then they would daily examine the things he would say. They would look at the Old Testament writings to see if it passed muster, and it did. So you can kind of picture what this happens. You say, no, no, guys, the Christ had to suffer and die. And they would go to the the Scriptures and say, let's see if we can find that. And they they would look and be like, oh, there it is. There it is. There it is. There it is. You know how that works? All of a sudden, you're just seeing it everywhere, and they realize this is really true, and they believe it. Verse 12 says, many of them therefore believed. And not a few of the Greek women of high standing as well as the men. And this is the second time, by the way, that, that Luke mentions women of high standing coming to faith. And, and I love this because up until this time, women weren't really, you know, in, in Jewish culture and in, in any culture really, weren't really included, weren't seen as valuable, weren't seen as important. And Christianity changes all of that. Now women are, are said to be equal with men. You know, we have different roles, but the Bible tells us that in Christ, we're one. And I love that this is just, this changes everything. And if you, if you look at women in, the, um, in countries where Christianity has been rejected or really isn't um, an influence, you'll see how the women are treated there. And it becomes really clear that the impact that Christianity has had on women. So I love that he includes that. Well, the party in Berea was fun while it lasted, but as usual, it doesn't last long, it seems. Verse 13 says, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. This is like a 50 mile trip. I mean, you got to really hate something to to walk 50 miles to shut it down. And they did. 
Verse 14 says, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So that's, uh, that's the narrative, and we're going to look at two things um, as far as takeaways from it. I'm talking extra fast today, so I'll, I'll pause for a minute, like a Salah moment, all right? Okay, here we go. Here's the two things. They eagerly examined the scriptures for truth, and they turned the whole world upside down. So the first one is this. They eagerly examined the scriptures for truth. The Bereans are still complimented and thought well of today. If somebody, if you're a Christian and somebody calls you a Berean, that's a good thing. That means you search the scriptures diligently to find out if something is true. They were complimented for the way that they listened to Paul, heard what he had to say, and then went back, searched the scriptures before they just said, no, you know, some people like do this thing where they're like, no, 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 they won't listen to anything at all. They weren't like this. I don't know if you've ever run into anybody whose mind is already made up, um, regardless of what information you bring them, but it's really frustrating. Um, I believe they're referred to as stubborn, I think is the right word. I've heard of these people. Uh, I know a man, can't say who it is. It's not, it, it might be me, but it's not. You'll know in a second it's not me because he went to seminary. Uh, I respect this man greatly, but he one time said that before he went to seminary, he'd already made up his mind about his theology and he wasn't going to change it. <laughs> I remember thinking, well, one, you're wasting a lot of money because it's real costly to go to seminary. And if you've already got everything figured out, you know, money and time, you, you're just kind of wasting it. You know, why would you want to go at all? But, but um, fortunately, most of his theology was excellent, so that's good. Teachable people understand that they don't have everything figured out, and they're willing to learn. Now, there are some things that we should be convinced of, and when, when we study the Scriptures and we, you know, we see something in there, we need to be convinced of it and, and not waver. But hopefully we all kind of have a teachable, humble spirit when it comes to, to learning things. Because as much as I hate to admit it, I've been wrong a couple of times. Right? Yeah, no, it's no, no, it's true. I know it's, I know it's hard to, I mean today, but yeah, yeah, I've been wrong more than a couple of times. Uh, a good example of this is when I went to Bible college, um, I had a class on end times. So, you know, Revelation, the Apocrypha, not the Apocrypha, that's wrong Bible college, the Apocalypse, there's a big difference between those two words, uh, and, and, and the class was taught something like this. Here's the right view that all the smart people believe. And then here are some dumb views that only stupid people believe. Right? I, I, it, was, it was complete coincidence, Jeff. Guess which view I was drawn to. I mean, it's like, duh, of course I'm going to believe the one that all the smart people believe. I didn't even really think about the other one seriously because it was presented in such a way that was like, of course I'm going to believe that one. And I held that view up until one day when a couple of brothers challenged me and asked me if I could back up my view from the scriptures. Can you go to the scriptures and defend your view without your preconceived notions? That's the important part. Because if you have preconceived notions and you go to the word, you try to insert what you believe into everything you look at. You don't just read it for what it says. And so I tried to go in, you know, with the idea that I, I could be wrong and so let's see what the author says and what the reader would have naturally understood. And I was surprised and a little ashamed at how quickly my view fell apart. Um, just having that little seed of knowing that, 
maybe it wasn't right, caused me to, to be now willing to see what I was unable to see before. And it became so clear, even the, even the passages that I used to go to, to try to defend my view, you'd read them all the way through and be like, wow, it actually says the exact opposite of what I wanted it, you know, thought it said. So it was a little humbling, but, but the truth is that when we become Christians, we have all kinds of ideas and worldviews and convictions, and we need to be willing to measure them against the standard of God's word. It's like a level or a plumb line that helps us to see what is true and what is false, right? I can hang a picture and think it looks really straight until I put a level on it. And then it's like, ah, oh, why was I thinking? You know, it's like that, that's kind of what God's word does. It straightens things out. It makes things clear in regards to truth. The Bereans were commended because if they found something that the Bible taught, they abandoned their former ideas and followed God's word. So being a Berean impacts what we believe, but it also should impact the way we live. James says it this way in James 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That's really a, a, a great word picture of, you know, if I, if I walked before I came to church this morning up to the mirror and looked at myself, and my hair was sticking out over this way, I have this little calic that I call it the little horn of Daniel because it always sticks up, <laughs> kind of funny. Uh, and I had spinach in my teeth and like, you know, crumbs in my beard. And I'd probably, you know, You'd look at that and you wouldn't think, oh, that's terrible. I look horrible this morning. All right, I'm going to church. See you. You would actually probably try to, you know, fix some of that stuff, right? And that's the idea. If God shows you what he wants in his word, are you willing to do it? Because there's blessing in doing things God's way. But I see so many Christians ignoring God's design and his desire and then they wonder why they don't feel close to God or, or why things aren't working out for them. And I know that's what his word says, but, and then they'll give you all the reasons why it, they're an exception to the rule. It doesn't apply to me because these, you know, if he, if he got understood these circumstances where they'll say, you know what, we prayed about it, right? And we decided to go ahead and do this. And it's like, well, but does God word says he hates that? Yeah, but we prayed about it. It's like, well, you don't even need to pray. You just read what it says and you, you have your answer. The truth is they don't like the answer. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It's meant to help us to walk on a path that's well lit so that we don't fall off the edge or get into trouble or get hurt. It leads us to life and joy and peace and protection and blessing when we follow it. It's not meant to restrain us or hamper us or hurt us or keep us from something fun. It's made to save us. And we need to have the faith to believe that that's true sometimes. So if you're doing something that God's word says is wrong, have the faith in God to trust him and stop doing that, those things. Reorient your life to the way God's word tells you you should live. So the idea here is that it's okay for us to listen to ideas and discussions and concepts with an open mind and an open heart in a teachable way, but we have to hold it up next to the grid of Scripture. So whatever, whatever comes in, you, you hold it up to the grid of Scripture and, and make sure that it's right. If it's not, guess which one goes, right? 
If it's true and it aligns with God's word, we accept it and we apply it. We do it. If it's false and it doesn't align with God's word, we reject it and stop doing it. And I just think, I imagine what the church would look like if, if everyone who names the name of Christ did this. And I don't even do it. I'll be honest. There's times when I know I don't do this. But I think, what, what an amazing place. There are some really strange things going on in churches today that would be eliminated if they, if they would just do this. And I read this story this week. It, it still baffles me that it's a true story. I thought it was the Babylon Bee when I was reading it. It wasn't. It was real. It wasn't a satire thing. And it's kind of gross, but I'm going to tell you anyway because it perfectly illustrates this point. It was a pastor in Ghana who decided he was going to get a, a blue barrel with his swimming trunks on, bathe in his church in front of his congregation, bathe, and then tell them to drink the water from his bath so that they would receive, a, it's true, I'm not making it up, they would receive a spiritual anointing from the Lord. And not only that, but if they would, take, they would bottle the water and take it home with them through the week, they could have you know, extra spiritual anointing through the week. He was generous that way. You know, don't want you to just have it today. You can have it all week long. And I'm just thinking, I mean, you can't, I mean, come on. You know, in the great words of R.C. Sproul, what's wrong with you people? You know, I mean, what are you thinking at that point? That's something you need to go back and take to the scriptures and be like, no, no, no. It's a hard no for me on that one. But that's weird. But that kind of stuff, it seems like it's happening all over the place. Okay, here we go. That's the first one. Examine the scriptures to make sure that they match up with what is true. The second one is this. They turned the world upside down. And I really like this phrase because it's funny how you can hear a phrase like that and it can seem like a negative thing or a positive thing, depending on which side of the, you know, the argument you're on here. For, for, Paul, and Barn, or for Paul and Silas, sorry, he's got Silas with him now. Uh, I can imagine them hearing that, you know, these guys are turning the world upside down and they're like, bro, up top, you know, this is like, this is good. Look at what they're saying. But for the Jews, they, they, they was like, oh, they're doing, you know, it was bad. It's quite a statement to make when you really think about it. And on one hand, I realize the Jewish leaders were just being overly dramatic, try to get these guys into more trouble. But the reality was they were turning the world upside down. Uh, what started as a little ripple 2,000 years ago has, has completely impacted the entire globe and still is doing it today. So the question is, how did they do it? How did they turn the world upside down? I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. Was it a, a hostile takeover by a massive army where they, where they came in and forced people to comply or else? No, it was, a, it was a peaceful thing. Was it political reform where they you know, voted in the right people, implemented the right policies, and passed the right laws? No, nothing like that. Was it a carefully implemented propaganda program where they would slowly indoctrinate people over time to kind of get their view in there, like what's happened in our world today? No. Nothing like that. No, they engaged individuals with a message about a Savior named Jesus who loved the world so that he came down to die for sinners. He was crucified on the cross. He was buried. And three days later, he rose again. That's the message. And if you'll place your faith in that message and in that truth, you will be forgiven and you will have everlasting life in his presence. They preached Christ crucified, and that turned the world upside down. And it shouldn't be surprising to me because that's what turned my life upside down. That's what turned my whole world upside down when I heard that back in 1986. Now, some of the tools that they, that they used to do this are described in verse 2 through 4. 
It says they proclaimed, they reasoned, they explained, they proved, and they persuaded. Those are some good words. These words speak of investment. Investment in learning God's word and investment in people's lives. If you're going to have a dialogue with people about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, you need to know your word. You need to know what the Bible teaches about these things, and you need to be willing to communicate it. I didn't even say able to communicate it because there's somehow, when you get into those situations, the Holy Spirit does something to where you start to become able. But if you know it, I think, I think that's what you need to, to focus on. I found that um, some Christians act like saying, God bless you after a person sneezes, you know, counts as taking part in the Great Commission. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not trying to be mean, but just simply telling people God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life isn't a message that's going to save somebody. That's not preaching the gospel to people. You know, there's an old saying, and you probably heard it, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. And it's kind of a way of saying that talk is cheap and that actions speak louder than words. And while I completely agree with the sentiment, our lives need to, to match our claim. I get that. Um, it's still imperative that we include words because the gospel is a specific message. You, you have to preach Christ crucified. That's, that's the deal. That's why Romans 1, Paul would say later, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That means I I'm not going to shy away from it. I'm not going to back down from it. Um, I'm going to share it. Why, Paul? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because its message contains the power of God to save people. Our actions can draw people to hear the message, but the message is what they need to hear to save them. And, and I get frustrated sometimes, and I'm, I'm going to be really careful in the way I say this, but I went to a meeting this week, a pastor's meeting, and there was a, a, a group there that was sharing their ministry and what they do. It's a great ministry, great people. But as they were talking, it became very clear. The person said, we don't share our faith openly. We allow the, our love to open the doors for, for people to come to God. And I remember thinking, <laughs> okay, love people is great. They're, they're providing a service for people, which is great. People need this stuff. But if you never connect the dots to Jesus, who he is and what he's done, You've missed the opportunity. All you've done is is helped them be comfortable for a little while before they face eternal judgment. And I don't mean to be harsh, but that's not enough. We need to tell them the gospel message. And that's how they turn the world upside down. But how many people did it take to turn the world upside down? John Wesley once said this, Give me 50 men who love nothing but God and fear nothing but sin, and I'll change the world. And I think it's a pretty inspirational quote, but when I read it, I think, well, I don't think that, I don't think that like, describes me very well. I wish it did, but I'm not a man who loves nothing but God, and I'm not a man who fears nothing but sin. But then I looked at Acts, and I thought, well, wait a minute. There's still something encouraging here because that seems to say, give me four crazy dudes that are filled with the Holy Spirit and the message of the gospel and God will turn the world upside down. And that's something I can get behind. You know, that's like, okay, that's good because I think of our church here and I'm like, well, this is a pretty insignificant church. No offense, but with, with some pretty insignificant people and I'm including us in that, right? We don't have all the bells and whistles of every other church out there. We don't have a lot that's attractional as far as that kind of stuff goes, but you know what we've got? We've got a message that will turn the stinking world upside down. Jesus Christ came and died for sinners. He loves people and he wants them to come into his kingdom if they will turn to him and believe. And we have this message that we, we can wreck things with. 
as I, as I was thinking about this message, I, I was never a real great student and especially not in science, but for some reason, God brought this thing to, back into my mind, which is funny how that works. Um, I remember, um, an interesting thing about the way our eyes see things. Uh, when we look at an object, our eye sees it upside down, which is really weird to me, but then our brain flips it around so fast that we don't notice. You remember that from science? I, I checked it just to make sure because I wanted to make sure. So if you want to just do a quick test, this is kind of weird, but just poke the, the lower corner of your eye and the impact from the poke will appear on the opposite corner. So just poke your lower lid. Go ahead and do it. Nobody's looking. I want, and you'll see, you'll see the result of it up on the, the opposite corner. That's because of this phenomenon, which is kind of weird. But, but as I thought about this, I couldn't help but think of this message from God in this. Right? Everything humans see is upside down and needs to be turned right side up. I mean, that's pretty funny when you think about it, right? Everything is wrong and incorrect and needs to be fixed. Everything we see looks like one thing, but it's something else. That's pretty radical. I mean, that's, I mean who is like our God? And I don't know that's why I did it, but I kind of think there's something there. Um, it's as if he wanted to give us a truth in the physical realm that we could apply to the spiritual realm. So they thought Paul and Silas were turning everything upside down by preaching Christ, but really they were turning everything right side up. When sin entered the world and the fall of man happened, it broke everything. It changed everything to where now up seems, seems down and right seems wrong and, and good seems evil. But, but this changes all of that. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And the message of the gospel is what breaks through that and fixes it all. And that's the message we have. Every one of us in here that's a believer right now that this has happened to has a message that we can take into the world to tell other people. And I can't believe that, you know, we've got like extra seats in here right now. The timing is incredible. Uh, when we went to Lapine, some people went that direction and we ended up with some space. I would encourage you guys to pray for opportunities through the week to start to talk to people that are hurting, that need to hear this message and to invite them to church. It's a very simple thing to do. Um, that's the mission field. When we leave here, congratulations, you're a missionary. You're an ambassador too. I can get you business cards if you want them and you can walk around <laughs> with them. Right? All right, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for um, the narratives that are in the book of Acts that the church can learn from today and, and just see how magnificent you are, how powerful you are, and how great you are. We thank you, Lord, that um, you have broke through the darkness, the blindness that we had to show us the glory of Christ and that we can receive him as our Savior if we would just trust in what he's done on the cross on our behalf. So, Lord, give us this um, desire, Lord, to see the people in our community come to you, to know you. Give us a heart like Paul and Silas had to be willing to even risk a little um, for that to happen. Pray for opportunities, Lord, for each person sitting here today for opportunities to go out and engage with somebody, to, to, to reason with them, to, to be able to get into these meaningful conversations, Lord, not to win an argument, um, not to be obnoxious or to, to fight with somebody, but, Lord, to lovingly lead them to a Savior who loves them and wants relationship with them. So thank you, Father, again for this place. We ask for your blessing upon it and upon what's going on in Lapine as well. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.